Welcome back, everybody. This is a uh, lecture that I gave about two years ago. It dovetailed into musculoskeletal pain, and that's a lot of fibromyalgia. At least 50% of patients with fibromyalgia have some type of spinal axial disease, and it's multifactorial. You know, it's comorbidity. It comes from uh, either inactivity, uh, predilection towards uh, gaining weight, and uh, degenerative components are just part of good living. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk through some of this, and it's uh, related to fibromyalgia, but it's related to pain in general. And it's, it's, it's important to kind of understand pain from a perspective that you often don't get, and that's from a uh, clinical and academic um, thought. So I don't have any disclaimers. Uh, this is not... Uh, recommendations or medical advice. This is informational only. All right, so we start off by saying what is so true. Uh, pain is not an opioid deficiency. So, sorry, multitasking. I'm doing an annual meeting as well and uh, <laughs> got a little free time here. So, this is the deal. Opioids have very little evidence that they promote enhanced functional lifestyle, return to work capacity, or really any measurable functional enhancements. They really have not been shown to demonstrate that. There's a Danish study, in fact, they show the opposite. Those that are on opioids tend to not do so well. They have decreased function, decreased quality of life greater morbidity and mortality. Now, we know that in this uh, opioid uh, epidemic or crisis that we're in, uh, it really is a pandemic. The difference between an epidemic and a pandemic is uh, epidemic tends to be little pockets. Pandemic seems to be everywhere. So it's really more of a pandemic. Opioids um, are just streaming across the border, as is uh, meth. And I'm sorry to say that I'm seeing so much more meth in my practice this year, and it's probably because of uh, COVID. The typical prescriptions, they weren't as abundant because people weren't really getting out to their physicians or healthcare providers. They were having pain, and they were still having the same problems with uh, situational depression, anxiety, and what's a quick fix? A little meth, I guess that's it. Raises your um, dopamine, norepinephrine, and in the reward pathway, that's like gasoline on a fire. So pain is biopsychosocial. We all know that, but it's also got a religious component and that spiritual component. We really can't tease it out. People believe what they believe, and with something that can't be touched, seen, or measured, like pain, uh, we only have the uh, patient's description as the most reliable measurement we have. I think that's going to change, however, as we understand a little bit more about neuroinflammation and the markers of neuroinflammation uh, surrounding glial cells uh, in the central nervous system and the like. We're going to probably have better tests. It won't be specific, but it might be sensitive. So that's kind of the way it is. I mean, 
Things change fast, especially in neuroscience. If you see a Venn diagram about pain where you see all these overlapping signs and symptoms, you know, be wary. <laughs> these Venn diagrams, they're overplayed. They're way overplayed. And we know what pain is. Pain is an unpleasant experience. Uh, it's biopsychosocial. And according to the classification of pain, it's, quote, an unpleasant sensory and or emotional experience based on actual or potential tissue damage. Pretty broad, isn't it? It doesn't tell me a lot. I do know what pain really is, though. It is the mechanism that either protects you or dogs you. The monkey on your back, it, it either it gets you away from a potentially dangerous situation. Uh, heat, run. <laughs> Bad uh, feeling about something like uh, I just have that gut feeling. Uh, it's emotional. Uh, pain tells me things. That little voice on your shoulder, it says either don't do that or get away from that or take something for that, but do something. And that kind of is our segue into chronification of pain. And Apicarian is a PhD that wrote a real nice article, and you can find it on NCBI or any uh, Google search. And it's a neat article to read and kind of absorb it. It's a little in the weeds, but it's not hard to understand. We know that structural MRIs really don't tell us much. They they can tell you if you have decreased brain mass, which you see in chronic conditions, including pain, but the functional MRI reveals brain function, and you can see pain better. You can actually see the footprint of fibromyalgia or different types of pain problems. They light up a little differently. Uh, another diagnostic tool maybe, right? So what they said in this article, the chronification of pain, is addiction can predict pain chronification. Well, okay, addiction follows many of the same pathways, pain, addiction, and depression. If you took a sagittal section or a, a, if you went right down the center of, of a rat's brain or a human's brain, they'd look really close. And that's why we study rat brains so much. They're very similar. And we know that pain, addiction, and depression follow many of the similar pathways in that primitive part of the brain, right behind the ear, and then takes itself up to the prefrontal cortex where it's interpreted. And in humans, that's a, a structurally important area because... You can interpret pain. You don't react to pain so much as you can interpret it, and you can have a memory of pain. Part of the process of um, chronic pain is a memory. Neuroinflammation, footprint, memory. So chronic pain and chronification is intimately linked with brain addiction circuitry as well as uh, depression pain, addiction, and depression. And there's a real likelihood with chronic pain that you or a loved one or whomever has it 
will have a situational depression anxiety comorbidity evolved that's important to address you really can't get one better without getting it all better and not necessarily cure but help you heal be in a better place not just where you're at but a better place so the emotional part of the brain the limbic system is part of the pathway to the central nervous system so the personality of pain or the emotional pathway of pain is intimately involved with the experience particularly with peripheral pain bone break bone hurt abdominal pain dull achy chronic type icky pain it's nonspecific, whereas if you prick your finger, it's very specific. You have a lot of pacing corpuscles and a lot of different uh, pain interpreting uh, structures there. And the abdomen, especially the way it evolved in your in your genesis and in, in your embryonic phases, is just not specific. That's exactly why when you have a CO2 injected into your gut, you have shoulder pain. What? How is that related? Well, it is embryologically. And then when you get uh, through different stages of uh, maturation in the womb, they start splitting, but they're linked. So pain is linked to a lot of things. In fibromyalgia, those trigger points, and I never have gotten a good explanation what trigger points are, never gotten a good explanation what myofascial pain is. But these trigger points that are so uh, over-interpreted by the American College of Rheumatology 1990 guidelines for fibromyalgia are a peripheral manifestation of a central nervous system problem. They really they don't exist, but they're there. And um, it's like that famous prime minister in Ireland, he was um, told that uh, on the way to the Shannon Airport, uh, they're putting in their four-lane uh, road, uh, there's a, a ferry bush there. And, and all the superstition around the ferry bush is no one wanted to remove the ferry bush Uh and so it was going to have to stay. So actually the road goes around the ferry bush at considerable expense. And they asked the prime minister, why did you do that? You really, you really believe in fairies? He goes, <clears throat> and to quote, I don't believe in fairies, but I know they're there. So that w- that's what pain is. And that's what myofascial pain is. And that's what trigger point points are. Uh, there's something there. I don't know what it is, but I know it's there. So chronification of pain is something we can see by the functional MRI. And we know that the brain is different in patients with chronic pain. How do we know that? Because over 90% plus... It's like over 95% really. Uh, Prediction, whether a patient will have chronic pain one year later, can be seen by the functional MRI at the time of event. Well, what's the event? They took 500 people in one category and 500 in another. They both had low back pain, similar 
descriptors and similar findings. And with this high level of confidence, over 90%, they could see from onset who probably was going to have chronic pain one year later. And the other 500 just got better. So it's a pretty interesting study. Chronification is influenced by many things. And when I tell you to quit smoking, that's what I'm talking about. When I tell you to get moving, that's what I'm talking around. Brain drive neurotrophic factor through a process of synaptogenesis elevates pretty darn rapidly. And that's runner's high. It's not in Keflins or endorphins. It's uh, rapidly rising brain derived neurotrophic factor. You heard it here. That's a topic for another day. So the brain reward circuit equals chronic pain. It's driven by dopamine. Pain, addiction, depression, common factor. All right, the world according to me. You can believe anything you choose if you choose to ignore the facts, right? That's the world according to me. All right, evidence-based medicine. We are what we are. Evidence-based medicine is one of the uh, factors that you're going to hear about, and you have to be very wary of evidence-based guidelines and uh, evidence-based factors because there can be so much variability in how the data is obtained, if it's sponsored, if there's bias built in, or if there's motivational uh, bias built in, say an academic individual needs to produce uh, whatever it is, a guideline on uh, low back pain, for example, and they got to get that thing out. Well, you can make statistics do about whatever you want because 49.77% of statistics are made up on the spot. Get it? Evidence-based guidelines, you have to look at them. You have to make assumptions, and you have to know their methodology. So when you hear something on TV, NBC is notorious about this. You hear a a medical something on TV, uh, you have to know the methodology. It's important to us in medicine to have reproducible results and a good methodology to better understand the best outcome. No more is it so than in chronic pain. So there's this thing called pseudo-addiction, and it was real popular in the early 90s. It's, it's, pseudo-addiction is a pseudo-reality. What they said was you got to keep giving more pain medicine because even though they're taking, taking it early and taking too much and they're still saying they hurt, it's because it's a pseudo-addiction. It's not a real addiction. They just need more medicine. We're off to the races. The fifth vital sign did enough damage. Terms like pseudo-addiction did enough damage and is based on crappy science. So uh, fear of patient harm, fear of regulatory, legal, or licensing penalties, addictive disorders evolving risk of addiction, and diversion misuse and abuse of medication is very real. So why would we ever let the fifth pathway or pseudo-addiction take off like like a uh, August wildfire? I can tell you why. It's because the science was so crappy. All right. This is the assumptions. 
that the healthcare provider understands risk and management of addictive disease. That's an assumption. It's not true. Persistent failure to treat addiction is poor medical practice. Uh, well, maybe. <clears throat> Just like if you undertreat pain, is that poor medical practice? I don't know. People die from pills. They don't die from pain, usually. Uh, failure to prescribe opioids when indicated is poor medical practice. That's possible. And let's just say cancer, for for example. Yeah, yeah, I can see that being being important. Physicians traditionally receive little or no education about pain management or the treatment of addiction. Absolutely true. Now, chronic pain basically rewires the brain. That's a good lay way of talking about it. It continues to send signals after the original cause. It's got like a memory. We're learning more about that through glial cell activation and uh, memory snippets. And comorbidities develop because of these. And we have, to, we have to know the terminology to get it right. So let's get this terminology right, okay? Abuse. Abuse of medication for purposes other than those for which it was prescribed uh, is is the use of a med wrong. That's abuse. Addiction, impaired control over drug use, compulsive drug use, and continued use despite harm or because of craving. You know, I need my Starbucks, right? Is that addiction? I don't know. Okay. Tolerance. This is key. Physiologic state caused by regular use of an opioid in which increased doses are needed to maintain the same effect. So let's go through these and drill them down a little. Physical dependence. Okay, it's a typical misused uh, term and should be used more. It's replaced often by, well, I don't want to get addicted. Now, that's not true. That's a normal physiologic state, the physiologic uh, uh, dependence. Physical dependence is normal. It's an expected result when you use a substance, and I'm not kidding about Starbucks coffee or any coffee, really. It can be that all the way to opioids, heroin, uh, meth, whatever. It's characterized by withdrawal. True. Physical dependence has withdrawal. It can be in various stages and various degrees. Okay, it's variable in its onset and its duration. Correct. It can be... Variable as uh, all of us are so different. We're all snowflakes. Sometimes coincides with addiction. True, sometimes. It is not itself addiction. True. Physical dependence is not by itself addiction. It might be related, but it's not itself. Now, tolerance. That's a natural state. It's called neuroadaptation. To drug-induced changes, that's normal. Okay, it's gonna your brain's gonna adapt. May result in increased analgesic needs. True, and I'm gonna talk a minute about uh, opioid-induced hyperalgesia coming up. It varies amongst individuals. Tolerance is variable, just like physical dependence, of course. We're all snowflakes. Varies according to the type of pain. Develops more quickly in younger people. Yes, it does. Is not addiction. This might surprise folks out there. <clears throat> the people that 
have significant events with opioids. They overdose or overdose and die are not necessarily the opioid naive people, the people that try it for the first, second, or third time. It's not those people. It tends to be the more chronic user through the process of tolerance that's pushing the envelope more and more, whereas the uh, adaptation of our central nervous system, particularly um, the medulla and um, uh, the brainstem and that sort of thing, they don't they don't change that much so you hit the respiratory arrest and it's because they were seeking an effect using a drug improperly and <clears throat> down they go and that's also a problem with people that get released from jail if you have a previous addict or somebody that was using um just using and you let them out of jail without properly addressing this they go out, they buy the same uh, two bags of heroin that they took before they went in to the big house, and they have respiratory arrest and die because they have no tolerance, okay? They still have physical dependence to some degree. They have a craving, but they don't have any tolerance. So the sensitized cellular environment has a lot to do with drugs. Two things to know. Pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. This sounds boring, and it is. But this is a good explanation for you because you're going to read about this stuff. You're going to need, need to have just a familiarity. Pharmacokinetics. It's a direct effect uh, related to the concentration at the site of action. So better put what we do to the drug, pharmacokinetics, all right? Pharmacodynamics, it's the effect, the biochemical physiologic change, what the drug does to us. All right, chew that up a little bit here. Okay, well, okay, this is a good stopping place for part one, and we'll get into part two of uh, the pain of fibromyalgia, and we'll talk a little bit more about the expectations of either treatment or improvement in part two, and I'll try not to put you to sleep. So, you know, pop me a, hey, I listened, how you doing, uh, paininformation.com or else, if you could leave a, a, a rating uh, an honest rating at iTunes. It really helps. They say it doesn't help you rank. I think it does. And the only way, reason I want to rank, I mean, I I got a day job. I'm doing this for folks. I'm doing this for people. And I um, think there's a lot of misinformation about pain. There's a lot of anxiety about pain, mistrust of those that have pain, particularly in the fibromyalgia, an unseen pain crowd you know you are um and you know if we can just stop misunderstanding in their track and that's that's part of pain diversity training and that's what i hope to do so thanks everybody bye